please turn in me, uh, with me to the book of Exodus. And Julia is here at the back of the sanctuary if you have children who would like Bible bags. Exodus, we're going to begin with the first chapter. Uh, this is not going to be on the PowerPoint today, so you um, will need a Bible. It's a story, so if you just want to listen to it while we read it, that is great too. Um, the lectionary has us start at verse 8. I'm actually going to have us start at verse 6 in a few minutes. Let's begin today with a question. Is what we want in life an indicator of who we are? Now, I want you to stop and just think about that for just a second. Is what you want in life an indicator of who you are? I think that has some truth for us today that I want us to consider. If it's true that what we want is an indicator of who we are, that our real selves uh, show in our direct behavior, then when we face circumstances where something is happening that we don't want... Doesn't our response show just as much? Is what we want or don't want, often in this uncertain life, just different sides of the same coin? And when we look at the world throughout time and today, don't we see that most of our conflicts happen in our homes and in our cities and in the global arena because someone isn't getting what they want? What do you do in life when you don't get what you want? When life is not what you want it to be. When people make choices or circumstances change or you find yourself deep in sin and you are not in the place that you wanted to be. Now, all of us have experiences daily from the most trifling to the most heart-wrenching, where we have to readjust our attitudes or our course of action, sometimes quickly, because our reality changed. And in that moment of decision, it cemented more of who we are and showed what we believed about God in the process. In our study today, as we continue the narrative of God's story, we see some people who experience life not as they expected or desired. We see them facing circumstances which, for various reasons, they did not want to face. So they took stock of what was available to them. They made choices, and those choices changed the course of their lives and the lives around them and the lives of the next generation. For we know that what we do often affects others for eternity. So let us read together. It's quite long. Hang in there. Exodus 1, we're going to start at 6, and we're going to go all the way to 2.10. Now Joseph and all of his brothers and all of that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. 
But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shiphrah and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. When the king of Egypt summoned them, the midwives the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that it was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and placed it among the reeds among the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Let's pray. Father God, we give this time to you. May you be glorified in our learning. May you speak directly to us, Lord. We are listening. Thank you so much, God, for your word. We look to you in all things. Amen. As we have studied the life of Joseph in these past few weeks, we've talked about family systems, God's faithfulness, provision, and the gift of reconciliation. We're shifting gears here a bit as we begin a new section, and the author is setting us up for the role of Moses in the deliverance of his people. Exodus means exit or departure, and this book is written as a continuation of the story that begins in Genesis and ends in Deuteronomy. The first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, are one long narrative. They are not meant to exist separately, but all together. Exodus, as we know it, is the chapter in the story of how God brought his people out of slavery and into the land promised to them. So we come to a time now when the life of the Israelites, the life that they have known in Egypt, is over. And I want us to look briefly at five different characters presented here and consider how they were not getting what they wanted and what they did about it. Along the way, there'll be things for us to think about as well as who God is for his character matters most for all of us. The first person we want to talk about is Pharaoh. 
We actually don't know how much, with how much certainty, how much time has passed since Joseph and his generation died, but enough time for a new leader not to care and get away with it. One of the ancillary lessons here for us to remember is that uh, favor is so fleeting in the political world. Joseph saved the nation of Egypt, but this new king is not interested in the past as he looks at the situation in front of him. In a classic dictator move, he spins the story of how horrible life will be if the Israelites are allowed to continue living unchecked. He enlists the cooperation of his people, and the oppression begins. To oppress here means to bring low, which is what the king wants. You see, the king looked around and he saw a reality that he did not want. He saw outsiders from another place threatening the culture or way of life that Egyptians enjoyed. He uses the argument of war, but there's no real evidence of that here. Who knows what he was really bothered by, but his clear prejudice about the Israelites formed the basis of his action against them. He was going to stop them. It's interesting to me that he didn't want them simply to go away. But why send them away when you can use them as a strong workforce and build new cities and storehouses on the backs of those who are inferior to you? The king lacks a moral compass, and pretty soon he denigrates from slave labor to directing the midwives to kill and then issuing an edict that all Hebrew baby boys must die. The more he was thwarted in his attempts, the more desperate he becomes. The history of the world in so many places is filled with leaders who take great measures to get what they want, no matter the human cost. It is horrific and barbaric, and there are no examples that I want to give to glorify such atrocity. All of us are currently thinking about them anyway, wishing that they did not happen, even as they currently are in parts of the world. It is a deep and sorrowful place of prayer for us who follow the Lord to daily ask God to carry those who are oppressed, to ask for evil to be stopped, to ask how he might use us to bring about change and hope. As often happens, the dictator in his evil loses complete sight of humanity. And as, as events spiral out of control, things just get worse. In this case, Pharaoh took on God. He set himself up against Yahweh, which we know will have culmination as the story progresses. What he wanted and what God wanted were in direct opposition to one another, and the battle is on. In our brokenness, sometimes we take on God. Sometimes we oppose him and the things that he wants for us and for his people. Pharaoh and those like him are an extreme example, but all of us can treat people in a way that strips them of their humanity when we don't get what we want. We can treat others as being less than made in the image of God, less than deserving of our love and care when we disagree with them or they are in the ways of our desires. In this case, it is nationalist pride and purity that sets the king up. And we always need to be mindful of the fact that we are first citizens of heaven before we are citizens of any specific country and everyone is equal in the eyes of the Lord. The second set of individuals I want to talk about are the Israelites themselves. All of a sudden, they find themselves in quite a different country than they had known. The Bible doesn't tell us much about them here, but I think that we can safely extrapolate some ideas. First of all, they did not want to be treated as slaves. Nobody does. 
They had a measure of freedom as a distinct people, which is something else we know they must have wanted since it is what they did. This is a hallmark of God's people, even this early, that they keep their culture and their ways as separate than those around them. Certainly not everyone, but enough that the king noticed, even after many generations had passed, they did not really blend. When I read about the people here, it makes me wonder if they didn't just want to live in peace. They were certainly hard workers who valued family life. They were also quite resilient. The more they were pushed, the more they gave, not yielding to the demands of Pharaoh and his slave masters, which the scripture points out as being a dreaded thing to the Egyptians. So while I think they wanted a normal life, when push came to shove, literally what they most wanted to do probably was survive. And they did. They did what was expected of them. Again, maybe not without some fight or resentment. And then they went home to their families, thus bringing more children to bear. When we celebrate the Seder dinner together, it is always poignant to remember the bitter herbs. To take a huge dollop of horseradish, as Pastor Denny encourages us, and experience the bitterness of these years for the Israelites. We choke and gasp at the first taste, and instantaneously our systems are in a state of shock. Our eyes water and our nasal passages clear, and the young kids are barely, you know, eating any of it, and they're like, and we choke, and we are reminded of the pain that was endured by these people that we read about today. It is made all the more difficult as we read that they seemingly did nothing wrong to deserve this. This is not their sin, but they are paying surely for it as if it were. You get a sense that perhaps maybe because we know what's coming, that they are waiting for the Lord. And we know that he is with them for a few reasons. One is because they're not taken off the map. They do not die out. He sustains them. They do not give in because in ways that we cannot know or see, he is helping them endure because that is what he does for his people. And then they become even more numerous. The word numerous here means teeming, as in the land was teeming with Israelites as the sea teems with fish. And in their fruitfulness, we understand that the Lord is there, giving them more life, sweet time at home, blessing their families. He has promised that Abraham's descendants will be numerous. This is part of him showing them that they're not alone. So life is not what they want it to be. And in small or big ways, they must be choosing to wait for the Lord to act, waiting for the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to show up because he is the true king who bends down and helps those who are low. He is the one who delights over them with singing and loves them with an everlasting love. They could have risen up. Maybe there were enough of them, but instead they chose to endure somehow by the grace given to them by their creator. This is where I know some of us are today. And I know that this has been a difficult summer for us and our congregation as we have said goodbye to two very important people. And so we wait for the Lord to come and to meet us in the midst of our pain, to bring deliverance from the bitterness of life. If you're in a season where you find yourself experiencing much sadness or opposition or just the relentlessness that comes from living in a broken world, Take heart and stop and look and see where the Lord is working. 
How is he blessing you with his love and presence? Trust that he is God and that he is with you and he is working a way for your deliverance. The third group I want to look at here are the midwives. These women are recorded for us to see how they stood up to evil. Pua and Shifra are actually Semitic names, so they probably are not Egyptian. They also could not have been the only midwives in the country, but they are the ones highlighted for their actions. You see, what they wanted was for all babies to live, not just because they were Jewish. The very nature of midwifery is that they help that they encourage new life to come into the world. So the baby has a safe delivery with someone there who brings a comforting, knowledgeable presence. The king was asking these women to do something that was absolutely antithetical to their very being. The anguish that this must have caused them, that he missed the point entirely in his drive for what he wanted is not surprising. When they are confronted with the reality of killing babies, they got creative The king, being evil and also short-sighted, believed their story that Hebrew women are much more vigorous when giving birth before they arrive. It is a lie, of course, and one that the Lord blesses. We can have a discussion later about situational ethics. (laughs) But these women saved these babies from evil, and the Lord rewarded them. He rewarded them because they feared the Lord and he gave them families of their own. He blessed them for their faithfulness to him. There are times that we are going to be called on to oppose evil to its face. That's what the midwives did. They stood up and they said, this is not going to happen on our watch. And they sacrificed their own safety and their own well-being and their reputation to protect the innocent because life is sacred It is a gift from the Lord. We must cherish it and save it, regardless of who might tell us differently. When we are called upon to protect the innocent, may it be what we want to do and follow through with the Lord's courage and help. The next people are Moses' mother and sister. They also wanted to save this new life that was given to them. Their hearts, of course, were more intimately involved because it was one of their own. They also opposed the king's edict, but in an interesting twist, they actually did follow the letter of the law here. The king said that all babies must be thrown into the Nile. And they did that. He didn't say that it couldn't be in a basket covered with pitch and tar that could float. Moses was a helpless baby to them, albeit a fine baby, and they wanted to save him at all costs. God blessed them as well by bringing a sympathetic woman who could not only ensure his safety, but bring God's plan to fruition. So the last person here is Pharaoh's daughter. What did she want? Well, certainly something different than her father. She openly defies him by saving this child and sheltering him in the king's house. The scripture said that she had compassion and she knew right away this was a Hebrew baby. She does not hesitate but does what she can with funds and full protection. In a perfect arrangement, Moses is given to be cared for by his mother unbeknownst to his new benefactor, and when he is older, taken to live as her son in the palace. This action sets Moses up to be in a unique position to be God's spokesperson later on with Pharaoh. This is too coincidental that she would find this particular baby and save this particular baby. The hand of God is at work. The people are going to have to wait a few years but they will have one who will come and rescue them. 
So we began our time today thinking about if what we want in life is an indicator of who we are. As I pondered this question a lot this week, I think that the answer is yes. Every day we show who we are by big and small ways, the things that we do and say and our attitudes. But that is not the end of the question for those who have surrendered their lives to the Lord. The question then is whether or not our wants are in alignment with his wants. The child that was saved in the reeds got to be the first one to tell the people one of the most important prayers, which is so central to our life today. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. When the people were finally rescued from Egypt, they understood in a new way who God was and what he wanted, which is for them to be his people. No matter what they faced, no matter where they were, no matter where they thought he was, for them to know him even as he for even as they are truly known by him. And when they looked back, maybe they saw his loving hand which had been with them all along. We celebrate his faithfulness in many ways, especially the sending of his son to rescue the rest of us. So what do you really want today? Are your wants more important than the people around you? Or do you want to preserve and nurture life even at a cost to yours? Where do you feel compelled to act in faithfulness or compassion for justice and for the things that God fights for? God blessed those who did what was good in his sight, and he still does. Let's pray.